There we go. Well, today we are starting Romans chapter 15. And uh, although there is a chapter break here in chapter 15, uh, Paul is still continuing the discussion that he began at the beginning of chapter 14, uh, as we'll see. Um, and uh, last week we were looking at uh, verses, uh, I believe, 19 through 23. Uh, he is, of course, discussing the subject of. Uh, he's discussing the subject of of uh, what do we do in the church when we don't agree about things, particularly when we. Uh, uh, when we don't agree about things that are what we call non-essential, and, and I want to stress, as I said before, saying they are non-essential doesn't mean they are unimportant. When we say they're non-essential, what we mean is they are not deal-breakers as far as our fellowship is concerned. Okay? So, uh, so uh, there are certain things that, are, that we believe are essential for us to have any meaningful Christian fellowship. Our belief in... The, in uh, in the triune God, our belief in the deity of Jesus Christ, our belief in the death and resurrection, atonement for our sins, the belief in the fall of man. So these are some things that are deal breakers. And without these, we really don't have any meaningful fellowship. Okay? But there are a lot of other issues. Many of them are important issues. What we believe about various things. Maybe what we believe about uh, a prophecy or the second coming. What we believe... Uh, uh, maybe about uh, the question of election and, and, uh, and, and things like that. These are important issues and we can wrestle with them. We can struggle with them together, but they, they are not deal breakers. They are not things which create a barrier so that we're not unable to fellowship with each other. But within the church, we have all kinds of areas that we differ about and they are non-essential areas uh, and and what do we do? How do we as Christians function within the church when we have all these differences? Okay? And as I said, Paul started this discussion at the beginning of chapter 14. And so we spent, what, about four weeks going through chapter 14. And now we're going to 15. He's still talking about it in the verses we're going to look at today and the verses we're going to look at next week. So that's going to make a total of six weeks at least. <laughs> I'm not making any promises here. Uh, but a total of six weeks that we spent on this subject where Paul is discussing what, it, what to the Romans amounts to an issue of what do you do when you have somebody in your fellowship who doesn't eat meat. Okay. Now that seems like a lot of time in a book like Romans to spend on a subject like that. And the question is, why are we spending all this time on this subject? Because God's church is to have peace and to build up and to encourage one another and wants to make sure that we get Okay, great, great. Uh, God really is concerned about this issue of peace. And while the problem in Rome, apparently, was a problem over the subject of eating meat or not eating meat, and 
and a question over whether or not you regard certain days as special or not, and apparently even some discussion over whether or not you could drink wine or not. These were discussions that apparently they were having in Rome, as we've talked about over the last several weeks. Those are only just a few of the issues. Those happen to be the issues that Rome was dealing with in the first century church. But we've listed all kinds of things that are non-essential areas that we as Christians have difference of opinion about. So this issue of having differences in the church was not a first century phenomenon. Right? It's a very current phenomenon. It's an issue that we wrestle with today. Uh, and, and the diversity of denominations, the diversity of, opinion, of opinions across the spectrum of Christianity is extremely broad. And even the diversity of opinions that we have right here in our own church over various issues uh, is fairly broad. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, th- so it really is an issue of Christians who differ. And, and I don't know about you, but I have, a, I have kind of a, a, a gut kind of default reaction when I encounter somebody that I have a difference with. And that is I pull back, right? Does anybody else do that? You encounter somebody who thinks differently, has a different opinion about, and you immediately start to kind of pull back. Okay. And that's not the response God wants us to have. God wants us as believers, as he says at the conclusion of the passage we're going to look at today, he wants us with one accord, with one voice, to glorify God. How do we do that? Okay. It's not an easy thing. It's one of the... I was thinking as I was studying this passage uh, the last few days and thinking about it, I was thinking about how, how many times people think that Christianity is kind of the, the, you know, the coward's way out. It's kind of, it's, you know, it's the easy life, you know. If you can't deal with life, you become a Christian. But becoming a Christian and living the Christian life is the most challenging thing you can do. And one of the places that... that that being a Christian throws me into my uncomfort zone, into the zone where I'm uncomfortable, is in this specific area. How do I relate to people that I really have strong differences of opinion with? Can I love them? Can I fellowship with them? Can Can I, with them, maintain the unity and peace in the body of Christ and still hold to our different opinions? Okay. And so that's what Paul's been wrestling with. And that's why he's taking so much time, because this is a uh, I guess the Holy Spirit was quite aware that although it was a problem in Rome, it was going to be a problem in every church for the next 2000 years. So he takes uh, uh, about a chapter and a half in the book of Romans of all books, a book that is so critical, so important to us. He takes a chapter and a half in this book to just belabor this point until we get it down. So, I make no apologies for taking the time that we are taking to cover this issue. Let's, uh, let's pick it up in... Uh, well, let's go back to verse 13 of chapter 14. That's really still just breaking into the middle of his discussion. But, but it'll help us kind of get in the flow again before we get to chapter 15. And we'll read down through verse 6 of chapter 15. He says, Therefore... Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. 
I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. But do not, or do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let that which is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For, in this, uh, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant that you be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, look down there, particularly in chapter 14, in the last part of the chapter, verses 19 through 23. What are some of the things that we talked about last week that stick in your mind? We talked about how if your brother is weak, it's a matter of conscience for him to say, not eat meat. But we insist on eating meat to exercise our life. That you may be encouraging him, if you will, to hear his comments by deciding to do something that he still is against. Okay, okay. And why is that a no-no? Because if we, if we, we start him to steer his conscience there, where will it stop? Okay, it's that issue of how important the conscience is. And although we all acknowledge and recognize that the conscience is fallible, it can, it can uh, give us incorrect information at times, so, the conscience is so central to our walk and our fellowship with God that we need to be very diligent and very careful not to ignore it, not to just disregard it. And if we grow in the habit of disregarding our conscience, our conscience will eventually be seared. That's one of two problems uh, that we have with our conscience. We 
We noticed last week that our consciences couldn't be weak or they could be seared. And a seared conscience is a really bad thing. Okay, that's the thing that God warns us against. Okay, a weak conscience, on the other hand, is uh, is just simply a matter of our conscience is telling us something is wrong that God doesn't really say is wrong. Okay, but it's possible for a Christian to walk, to have a weak conscience. Okay, or weak in faith, as he says in this chapter. It's possible for a Christian to have a weak conscience and yet to still have a very vibrant walk with God. Okay? And so it's very important for us in our dealing with one another not to do anything that would encourage a believer to disregard their conscience because what we're really encouraging them to do is to disregard one of the ways that God speaks to them. Okay? And, and so that's a very bad thing. What else did we talk about last week? Well, you brought up the point that it doesn't mean we can't do what God has given us the right to do. It just means you don't encourage other people to do what you have the right to do if they don't. Okay, okay. It seems clear that Paul, throughout this, throughout this passage, is not prohibiting the those who have freedom, uh, the ones he will in this passage begin to call the strong, uh, the passage we're looking at today. But uh, but Paul is not saying to those who have freedom, you can never exercise your freedom, you can never enjoy these things that God has given to you. Enjoy. He's not saying that. What he's saying is you don't flaunt your freedom. You don't. You don't exercise your freedom in such a way that it becomes a hindrance or a stumbling block or an offense to another. And when we use the word offense there, we don't mean the word offense in the way we use it today. Today, when we talk about offending somebody, we talk about doing anything that makes the other person a little upset with us, you know, or they don't agree with us. And so they're offended. And so if we if we put a nativity scene in our front yard and an atheist drives down the street, he's offended. Okay, well, he may be offended and that's, that's one thing, that's an issue and we might want to just, uh, think about whether or not that's something we want to do. But we haven't offended him in the way that Paul is using the word offense. Because we are not, by our putting a nativity scene in our front yard, becoming a temptation to him to put a nativity scene in his front yard. He's not going to do that. He's pretty convinced. Okay? So, he's offended. He, 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 he's mad at us because we put one in our yard. But he is not offended in the Romans 14 sense of offense that he is somehow being encouraged to do something that he thinks is wrong. Okay? So, we need to understand when Paul uses the word offense here that that's what he's talking about. He's talking about creating a stumbling block. He uses the term here, the phrase, he talks about tearing down the work of God. And we talked about how, how God has been working in our lives, in all of us, for a period of many years to get us to the point where we are in our Christian faith. Okay. He, he drew us to Christ. He he suffered. He died for us. He wooed us. He drew us to Himself. We responded to that to that call of salvation. And since that point of time, God has been carefully, meticulously building us up in our walk with Him. 
Now, somebody comes along who has a little bit more freedom, who's a little bit stronger maybe than we are, and they behave in such a way that it entices us to ignore our conscience and act in a way that we think is wrong and our walk with God is hindered. It's torn down. So when I do that, when I act in such a way that encourages another person to do something they think is wrong, I am tearing down the work of God in their life. Even though the scruple that they're holding is not something God has commanded. It's still tearing down the work of God because I'm causing them to act contrary or encouraging them to act contrary to their conscience. Well, last week we talked a little bit also then, uh, just going a little further with this point, uh, we talked about, well, if I have if I have this liberty, if I have this freedom, and, and Paul is not explicitly commanding me to never exercise this freedom, but I am obligated to take into mind and keep into my consideration my weaker brother, the one who is weaker in conscience. How can I do this? How can I even let it be known that I have this liberty? Now, Paul is very clearly let it be known he has this freedom. And in the verse we'll look at today, verse 1 of chapter 15, he's very clear. He says, I'm, I'm one of the strong. I have these freedoms. Okay. So now the weak in Rome know he has this freedom. That he thinks he has this freedom. How is that not encouraging them to sin against their conscience? Has Paul done the very thing he's prohibiting us from doing? What does Paul do to ensure that when a weak person discovers he has a freedom, that that weak person is not enticed or encouraged to do something contrary to their conscience. How does he do that? I think you have to be aware of other people and what they believe. And uh, just because you feel it's okay to do something, you don't Okay. Yeah. Okay. But that doesn't directly answer my question. That's true, what you said. But here Paul is making it very clear in a context in which there are weak people, weak Christians, those with a weak conscience in certain areas of scruples. He's making it very clear in a context where they can read it, they can hear it, they can know it that Paul is saying, I have freedom in these areas that you don't feel you have freedom in. How is it that Paul can do that and not be encouraging them to sin against their conscience? The key is in the last verse of chapter 14. Well, actually, I don't think he's doing it without without encouraging them somewhat to take advantage of those freedoms. Okay. He actually is saying it's okay if you do that. Yes. But he's not promoting it strongly. He's not promoting it strongly and he is warning them never to act contrary to their conscience. 
Because at the end of chapter 14, he says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. So he's saying to that, he's saying to the weak, listen, if you don't feel this liberty, and I, I agree with Ron, that what Paul would desire is that everybody would come to, to know this liberty and freedom in Christ that he knows. So he definitely wants to move that in that, in that, move them in that direction. But he warns them that until they are there, they must not act contrary to their conscience. So if I'm a strong person and I, and I am around some who I know are weak in some area of scruples, uh, I will, and, and I still feel that I have this liberty or freedom, I may at times, discreetly, not in their face, not even necessarily in their presence, I may at times discreetly exercise my freedom. I may even at times discuss my freedom in a context where they're made aware of it or where they, uh, where they uh, uh, discover that I have that freedom and I feel that I have that freedom. But what I should do is if I'm aware that there are some who don't have that freedom is I should, like Paul, say, now listen, this is, a, this is a non-essential. And I believe that in Christ I have freedom in this area. But I want to solemnly urge you, if you don't feel you have freedom in this area, that's your walk with God. That's the way you honor God. And so, don't you ever do anything that would be dishonoring to God or that wouldn't be in keeping with the, the, the sense of duty and obligation that you feel to God. In other words, I encourage them in two directions. I encourage them to think about and contemplate what is their freedom in Christ, but I admonish them never to act contrary to their conscience. Okay. Yes, Gary. Yes, uh, I think the scriptures. Uh, there are several scriptures uh, where, uh, particularly in the New Testament, where Paul or the other writers lay down the things that these these are the essentials. We see some of the things over which they say, okay, so-and-so doesn't hold to this, and so, you know, he's out, you know. Uh, so there are, there, are, there are certain things that the church historically has regarded as the non-essentials. The deity of Christ, the atonement, uh, the trinity. Uh, uh, there are a list of, of crucial doctrines that we believe. There are certain uh, moral or ethical issues that we believe are essential. So, Paul gives us a list of the kinds of people that we will not accept into fellowship. Okay, uh, thieves, murderers, homosexuals, adulterers, etc., etc., etc. So there are ethical non-essential, there are ethical essentials, and there are theological essentials. And the Scripture lists those. Beyond those, when we get beyond that list, then we get into the non-essentials. Does that help to answer your question? Yes. Okay. Great. So even of a different denomination, you know, because, like, 
Right. But we still don't. It's just not comfortable. Exactly. Uh, maybe it's our upbringing, but I would still. I mean, it's working. Yeah. 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 But I don't. I don't put them down because I know there's other people. Yeah. You know, now if they were drunk, that would be a different. Yes. Thing, yeah. Because the scripture's clear on that. Yes. It doesn't say not drink. Yeah. But for me, this tolerance only goes so far. <laughs> we can handle it in the church, but when we get in the marriage. <laughs> but this whole debate came up in our organization, actually, because we're in a gift center, and we're like, here we're going to commit to use it, look, cut behaviors, and we're going to get this big debate, and we kind of had this winter group, and then we all went back and prayed and listened to one take. I said, sit to every member who came back, and we said, no, I'm and there was a sweet spirit about that. Not that we're condemning others mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. But for us, yeah. it was a surprise. Well, and I think that's, uh, that's exactly the issue that, that Paul is trying to bring out. And, and particularly early in chapter 14, he says, on these areas of non-essentials, those who have scruples in an area are not to judge those who feel the freedom. And those who feel the freedom, he says, are not to look down upon or, or uh, hold in contempt is the word he uses not to hold in contempt those who don't have that freedom so there's this mutuality this sense of, of recognizing there's a difference there where, where, wherever whatever the reason for the difference there is a difference but these are clearly areas that the church has differences of opinions I was just listening to a, a guy on the radio who I listen to. Uh, I don't listen to him a lot, but I like it when I happen to catch him. I'll be driving across town or something and flip on my radio. And he's a he's a brother in Christ, uh, and uh, and he's very uh, he's he's kind of a very casual type of person. So he he speaks casually, and it just it's a very winsome way of presenting truth. And 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 uh, and you just find yourself identifying with him as he shares. And, and he was just talking, and, and I don't even remember what he was talking about, but he was talking about when he and some of his pastor friends, guys, hang out together, and they just do guy stuff, you know. Well, that's red flags right away for you ladies, I know. But, but so, at any rate, they, and he was talking about how they were sitting around smoking cigars, and, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting, you know. Uh, I, I don't see anything in here about not smoking cigars, you know, so I... I can't judge him. I thought it was a little interesting that a guy who's pastor and is widely recognized on the radio would uh, uh, would uh, just openly talk about it on the radio. But he obviously feels liberty and freedom in that area. Okay, uh, and uh, so there are all kinds of areas like this on which we as Christians disagree. And I know there are some who would just think that to light up a cigar would be just the worst thing in the world. Okay. 
but for this brother in Christ, he, he didn't. He, it didn't even apparently dawn on him that there were some out there that didn't think that. So, uh, so these are all examples of non-essentials. Okay that we wrestle with and and they pertain to areas of conduct and behavior and I think they also pertain to some areas of theology. You know, do we, uh, what do we think about the gifts of the Spirit? What do we think about the end times? What do we think about uh, the doctrine of of election and sovereignty and issues like that? Uh, Of course, all Christians, uh, every Christian I know believes in election and every Christian I know believes in sovereignty, but we differ in how we believe in those things, okay? And uh, so these are, these are things that we can still fellowship together around even though we have some strong differences. Well, all of that is just review, okay? These are some of the things we've been talking about. But in chapter 15, he says then, he says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. For whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant that you be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul here at the beginning of this passage in verse 1 finally begins to use a term we've been using all the way through chapter 14 and I could do it in chapter 14 because I knew he was going to introduce it in chapter 15. But he calls those that class of people who have this freedom that he's been discussing, he finally gives them a name. He calls them the strong. Actually, the word there could mean the powerful or the influential. Okay, But he uses it in the sense primarily of strength and the idea that they have, a, they have the strength of conscience. They are not among the weak. So now we have kind of two classes of people and we have a label for them. We have those who have scruples in certain areas of non-essentials and he calls those the weak okay uh, because their conscience in those areas is weak and if they were to do something in those areas their conscience would be hurt okay and then the other classification of people are those who have freedom and liberty and recognize that God has given us all these things to enjoy as he says in first Timothy 4 and so uh, so he calls these the strong or those who have a strong conscience or are strong in faith in this area. So he introduces this term. Uh, so that's one change. You now he's finally kind of introduced this term that I've cheated and used all the way through 14. But the other thing he does here in verse one is he classifies himself among the strong. OK, he's not done that up till this point. Uh, not at least not explicitly, but now he explicitly says, I'm one of those. Okay, I'm one of those who feels I have the liberty. Okay, given the context, I think what he's saying is he has the liberty to eat meat and he has the liberty to regard all days alike and he has the liberty to drink wine. Okay, that's what I understand he's saying. He's among the free and I think he has a lot of other liberties, too. 
some of them, we might feel a little uncomfortable if we were around Paul. We go, wow, Paul, can you do that? I can't do that. You know, but so so anyway, he is among the strong. But he begins by saying that we who are in that position have a debt. It says here, we ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are without strength. But the word there is fairly strong. Sometimes we think ought. It's just kind of a, you know, well, you ought to do this or you should do this. You know, it's 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 not a weak term here. It comes from a word that that uh, it's a it's a word that comes from a group of words that's associated with the idea of a debt or an obligation. So we can think here in these terms that the the weak think of themselves as having an obligation or a responsibility to observe certain scruples. So they have their obligation. But the strong also have an obligation. And their obligation is to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. And it is a debt that they owe. It's not something they can just shrug off and just do if they want to or not do if they don't want to. Paul says, if you are among the strong, you owe this to the weak. Now, it is interesting that he uses this term strong. And, and when he speaks of the weak, he says, uh, he says to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And he, he uses kind of the antonym of the word strong there. Okay. And the word strong, uh, as we've used it throughout our discussion in chapter 14, although Paul hasn't used it, uh, has this idea of strength or power or whatever. But it also is used in reference to those who are in positions of power. Okay. And, and I find it interesting that Paul uses that term. And then he talks about those who are weak as being those who are without power. So they don't. They don't have the strength of conscience that somebody else has. But not only that, in this particular context, in the church in Rome, where those who are weak are in the minority, they are out of power. Okay? If we think in political terms, okay? If we think in political terms, the strong are in the majority in the church in Rome. And the weak, who are primarily Jews or uh, previously Gentile converts to Judaism who eventually became Christians, but they're those who have this strong Jewish flavor or context to their faith. They are in the minority. So they're not in power. It's very easy when you're the group that's in power to disregard the burdens of those who are out of power. Right. And and in fact, I think to some degree in our culture, we don't even feel very apologetic about that because we're really big on this democracy thing. Right. We're really big. You know, the majority rules and uh, and and to some degree, the mentality that we get is, well, if the majority if the majority wants it this way, then, well, just tough luck for the minority. Well, I'm not going to discuss politics here this morning, but I can tell you in the church that does not work. I don't think it works very well in politics either, but it doesn't work in the church. 
God says to us that the strong, if we are among the strong, we have a debt or an obligation to those who are out of power. So we don't just kind of run roughshod over people. But rather, we pay attention to their weaknesses. And he says, we bear them. We carry them. So, in the context in which Paul is speaking here, the strong have a debt or an obligation or responsibility to be aware of those in their midst who are weak, not weak in a character sense, not weak in a sense that they're not very good Christians, but weak in the sense that they have scruples in these areas, that we don't share those scruples and it's a non-essential. That those who are strong have an obligation to help the weak person carry that burden. I want you to notice, the burden being carried here is not the strong person's burden. Right? It's the weak person's burden. He helps carry or bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. So, if I am a strong person, and it's the strong to whom Paul is speaking at this point, if I am a strong person, this passage is not about me carrying my burdens. It's, me, it's about me going over here to this weak person and helping them carry their burden. What does that mean? Well, what is the burden the weak person has? Okay, it's their scruples. They they need to they have some some standards that they need to maintain, right? That's their burden, if we can call it that. Okay. Now, if I'm a strong person, my obligation, my duty to that weak person is to help them do that. That's why I suggested uh, last week, and as we looked at that last verse in chapter 14, that Paul's attitude is one of saying to the weak, listen, if these are your scruples, you stick to them. That's what we want to do. When we encounter someone who has scruples in an area that we don't share, then, then our duty and our obligation to them, until their mind is changed and they are fully convinced otherwise as he says there at the end of chapter 14, fully convinced, until they are fully convinced otherwise, what I want to do is I want to help them do that. Yeah, Ron. Can I illustrate that? Yes, please. Uh, Sheila and I were talking about this morning about how people change over time. But I remember when I was a teenager, um, my um, conviction was that I would not eat in a restaurant that sold beer. I just, I had that conviction. We'd always lived that way. When we traveled, my dad always looked for a place that didn't, didn't serve beer. And I remember when I would get with other young people, sometimes from different churches around, and church would be over, and we'd get ready to go somewhere to eat, they knew how I felt. And I can remember them driving around town looking for a place for me, because that was my conviction. And... And I look back at that now, and it wasn't important, 
I didn't need to do that, but that was my conviction, and that's the way I felt. And they tolerated that, and not only tolerated it, they helped me with it. That's a, that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. It's a perfect example of what we're talking about. Where we want to we want to bear that burden. These other young people could have gone anywhere to eat. They could, uh, assuming they had that liberty or freedom. They could have gone anywhere. But they took it upon themselves without condemning Ron, uh, without making him feel stupid or low or uh, uh, less of a Christian. They helped him honor his conviction. Okay? And, uh, and, and I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind. This is the mentality that we're to have. He says, so we ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And then he says, and not just please ourselves. Because I think, well, I've got freedom. <laughs> if I've got freedom and these things God says uh, in Timothy, they're given to me to enjoy, then I should enjoy them. Why should this person over here keep me from enjoying this? This is pleasing to me. Well, Paul says, no. We don't just please ourselves. Uh, incidentally, that's the New American translation. And the word just is in italics. It's not in the Greek. <laughs> it's added there by the translators. But it really reads, and not please themselves. Okay. So, it's not... It's not, Paul's not even allowing here that pleasing ourselves comes into consideration. We are, he says, instead, beginning in the next verse, we are about pleasing our neighbor. What? Wait a minute. Did Paul just say that? Did Paul just say that Christians are about to be... One of the things we're about to be doing is pleasing others. Isn't this the Paul who said in Colossians to the slaves not, not, to, not to work in their slaves as though they were pleasing men? Is this not the Paul who says on a couple occasions, once in Thessalonians and once in Timothy, I am not a man pleaser. There's a... Okay, okay. Well, let's think about that. Clearly, we have two different ideas here, two different kinds of pleasing men. Okay. So we have the pleasing men that God commands here in Romans chapter 14, or chapter 15, and incidentally also in chapter 14. And we have the other kind of pleasing men. So let's stop and think about that for a minute. What is, what is the, what is the, uh, we'll just call it for sake of, uh, uh, sake of understanding ourselves here, we'll just call it man-pleasers or man-pleasing. What does man-pleasing look like in the negative sense? Pardon? Flattery. Flattery, okay. And what does that imply? So, insincerity. Yeah, insincerity. Okay. All right. Flattery, insincerity. What else? Somebody that just doesn't have the courage to be supposed to just call the crowd. Okay, so it implies compromise, right? Okay. 
What else? Compromise in a negative sense. What else? In the passage you mentioned, it brings uh, men. I think the context there, if I remember the passage right, is about doing your job just barely enough to get by instead of doing your work under the Lord, which implies going above and beyond. Okay. Okay. So this kind of men pleasing thinks, uh, I don't know how to put it simply, but it thinks about, uh, it thinks about men, but not God. Is that a good way to put it? Well, of course it is. I put it that way. <laughs> okay. It's self-centered. Okay. Anybody else want to throw something in there? Gary, you look like you're about... Lowest common denominator. Okay, okay, okay. Can't go back to self-centered, but it's... I'll do this, what's in it for me? Yeah. Promotion, whatever. Okay. Well, that's the man-pleasers. Then we have the pleasing, to use Paul's term here, pleasing neighbor. This is the good kind. What does it look like? Uh, just one more thing on the bad kind. Sometimes uh, an element involved there is fear. Fear, okay. Okay. Fear man. Scripture says fear man brings a snare. Yeah, okay. All right. So what does the good look like? It's self-denial. Boy, that's a contrast, isn't it? Because I'm not pleasing myself. Concern for others. Okay. Another nice little word for that is love, right? Yeah. yeah. What else? To benefit another. Okay. <laughs> to benefit another. Uh, how does he say it there in verse 2? Okay. For their good, to their edification, he says. Okay. So it's very other centered. Exactly. Okay. And a classic example of that is in verse, uh, in chapter 14, in verse. Uh, oh, I'm missing it now, but he says, uh, oh, verse 18, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So, so this is other centered and it, it seeks both. It seeks first God's approval. But it also seeks the approval of men. And the people approve because they are benefiting. They are growing. Okay? So there are these two kinds of man-pleasing that we deal with in Scripture. And one of them is negative and the other is positive. One of them we avoid like the plague. And one of them we sacrifice we give up. We do whatever it takes to do this. Because this 
builds up the body of Christ. This glorifies God. Uh, you're going to say something? Yeah, I'll say the Most of all those are Respect from the Yeah. 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 Exactly. It's to help somebody and to bring glory to God. So he says, we have then this principle that in our dealings with those with whom we have these differences and these disagreements. We have this principle of pleasing others and not pleasing ourselves. Well, where did he come up with this? Did he just pull this out of thin air? Where does Paul come up with this idea of pleasing others and not pleasing yourself? He had an example. He had an example. And that we get in verse 3. The example is Jesus. He says, For even Christ did not please Himself. But as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you, speaking of his Father in heaven, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen upon me. It's a quote from Psalm 69. You remember the first part of Psalm 69.9. It says, zeal for thy house has eaten me up or consumed me. Okay. The last half of that verse is the part that Paul quotes here in Romans chapter 15. Okay, and that is that that speaking messianically, the psalmist says that the reproaches that have, uh, the reproaches uh, of those who reproach the Father have fallen upon His Son. So Jesus came to Earth, He lived upon Earth, He walked upon Earth, and He constantly took upon Himself the reproaches that men deal out. Men, men hate God. And they're reproaching God all the time. I had an opportunity this week to uh, listen to a debate uh, between uh, John Lennox and Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Dawkins, of course, you're all familiar with, one of the so-called new atheists, very militant in his atheism, very anti-Christian. And John Lennox is a guy you may never heard of before, but if you haven't, you should Google him. Uh, you should YouTube him. He has a, uh, he's a uh, brilliant mathematician from Oxford in England. And uh, he's a wonderful Christian man, brilliant Christian man. And he takes on all these really big name atheists, Hitchens and Dawkins, and he debates them. And so there are, um, you can go to YouTube and watch these hour and a half long, two hour debates between John Lennox and guys like Dawkins and Hitchens and other people like that. So it's tremendously edifying. And I was listening to a debate that he had this week. I was listening to a debate that he, I don't know when it was, but he, a debate that he had with Richard Dawkins. And I was struck with how vile Richard Dawkins' attitude towards God is. And he talks about the crucifixion. He talks about death, Christ's death on the cross as a petty thing. He used that term over and over again, talking about the atonement, the most precious element of our Christian faith. He talks about it as a petty thing and why God was so petty as to do this, etc., etc., etc. Of course, he doesn't, so theoretically, doesn't even believe in God. But, but he's reproaching God. He's reproaching God for the choices that God has made and the things that God has done. And, you know, well, he's just one example. 
Unbelievers do that all the time, and sometimes we as Christians do it. We argue with God, we quarrel with God, we tell Him He didn't do it right. Okay? Well, Jesus, when He came to earth, He came to take all that on Himself. And He walked this earth and He took those reproaches up even to include the cross. Even though He was God Himself. Now, He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. But He did. Why did He do that? Well, He did it first and foremost because He loved the Father. He did it because He loved us too. But first and foremost, He did it because He loved the Father. And because He loved the Father, He was willing to set aside His pleasure. His pleasure would have been to have been well-received, commended, praised. Okay, That would have been His pleasure. But He did not come to please Himself. He came to please His Father. And His Father's pleasure was that those who reproached Him might be reconciled to Him. That was the Father's pleasure. And so, Jesus did not please Himself as He walked on earth as a man, but He pleased the Father so that the reproachers might be reconciled. Now, if Jesus could do that with those who are, Scripture says, the enemies of God, Why, do, why are we so reluctant to bend over a little bit backwards for the sake of our brother or sister in Christ? Right. I mean, the comparison is just absurd, isn't it? If all I have to do is say, okay, for the sake of my brother or sister in Christ... I'm going to be really discreet about this liberty I have. And I'm not going to flaunt it on them. And I'm not going to push it on them. And I'm not going to live in any way that would encourage them to do something that would be counter. That's all I'm going to do. I don't have to die on a cross. I don't have to suffer the mocking and abuse of people just to do that. I just set aside a liberty I have. Actually, I'm not even set aside a liberty. I'm exercising my liberty not to do that in order that this brother or sister for whom Christ died could continue to be built up and grow in the faith. And maybe someday they'll come to have the liberty I am. But even if they don't, I'm going to do this for them. And then Paul says, after having quoted from the Old Testament, he makes this comment about the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says, well, these things that were written in earlier times were written for our instruction. In order that, he says, through perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture, we may have hope. So, we've already learned from Romans chapter 5 that perseverance is one of the steps to hope, right? Well, he says... One of the ways that works is that as we are persevering, and in the context, what, he, what does he mean? He means we're persevering in bearing others' burdens. We're persevering in pleasing others. Because it's not always fun. It's not always easy, right? 
So it requires some perseverance. But as we persevere in it, and as we read the Old Testament, we get encouraged that this perseverance is going to reap an eternal fruit. And so we have hope. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul kind of throws the Jews a bone here. The Jewish Christians. He kind of throws them a bone. And the bone he's throwing them is... I don't mean that in a derogatory term here. But the bone he's throwing them is we still value the Old Testament. You know, Paul said a lot about we're not under the law, etc., etc., etc. But what he's making clear is, hey, this Old Testament Scriptures, these are important. And we, we as believers today can learn and benefit and be encouraged by them. I always, it just freaks me out every time I hear somebody say that the Old Testament isn't important. It's just... You know, it's just the, the Old Testament scriptures are there for our instruction, and for our encouragement as we persevere. And and so he says, now the God who gives perseverance and the God who gives encouragement. So neither one of those things are from ourselves, are they? But the God who gives that, he says, may the God who gives perseverance and the God who gives encouragement grant that you might be of one mind, of the same mind. Now, we know that Paul does not mean here that we all agree about non-essentials because he's just gone through a whole chapter explaining how we're not going to agree about non-essentials. So Paul, when he says be of one mind here, is not talking about agreement of opinion. But rather, he's talking about having the mind according to Christ. What is the mind according to Christ? The mind according to Christ is the mind that says, I will not please myself, but I will please others. It's the same thing we see in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul enjoins us to have the mind of Christ, and then he says the mind of Christ is this. He, who though he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. So even though he was God a very God, he was, be, he was willing to be looked upon as nothing more than a servant of men in order that he might act redemptively in our lives. That's the mind of Christ. That's the mind that every believer is to have. So instead of trying to browbeat one another into agreeing with us on our petty little opinions, what if all of us as Christians just thought, I'm going to have the mind of Christ? And you said, you're going to have the mind of Christ. So that whenever we interacted with each other, we were interacting like Christ would. And the way Christ would interact would be, I'm not so concerned with what so-and-so thinks about me right now, because God will straight all all that around me in. I'm not so concerned with what somebody thinks about me right now. What I'm really concerned about is pleasing them. Building them up. Doing their good. This kind of pleasing right here. Benefiting the other. That's the mind of Christ that all of us are enjoined to have. And if we have that, Paul says, the result will be that we will glorify God with one voice. Have you ever heard a good choir? Have you ever heard a good choir? 
That's what God wants the church to be. A choir that glorifies God with one voice. It will not happen if we focus on our differences. It will happen if we all adopt the mind of Christ. Okay? Well, there's more of this to come yet. Okay?